Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show the state representative from the 1st Hampshire District, Lindsay Sabadosa. Representative Sabadosa, thank you so much for being with us. I want to ask you something that I've been dying to ask you since your last constituent newsletter, where you wrote a, I thought, really compelling uh, dissertation almost on all of the hard things that the legislature has been dealing with. At the same time, there was a lot of criticism of the legislature for not ha having a very productive session. And there was a, uh, it didn't sync what you were saying and what the public criticism of this legislative session has been. They just weren't congruent. So I'm wondering if you could help sort this out for me. Absolutely. I'm actually really glad that you asked me this question because this is something that I have wanted to talk about. So um, I imagine you and I'm sure other listeners uh, saw an article in the Boston Globe that talked about the legislator not, not being as I think the word they used was a as legislators in other states. And, and I've through and read the study that they were referencing, uh, well, which was really interesting because, uh, oops, am I cutting out on you? Yes. You are cutting, you are cutting out some. Let's keep going. And if this doesn't get better, we'll uh, ask you to give us a call. But why don't you keep going? Okay. Um, so I clicked through and I read the underlying uh, study that that article was based on. And it was really fascinating because what it did was a one-to-one -one comparison. So it said in Colorado, they passed one bill. In Massachusetts, they passed one bill. And therefore, uh, because Colorado passed four bills and Massachusetts passed three bills, Colorado is more effective. The problem with the methodology in the study is that it doesn't take into account what Massachusetts does, which is take hundreds of bills and put them into one omnibus bill. So when we're looking at even, for example, the budget, I mean, we can say we shouldn't do this, but this is how things are done. You know, in the budget this year, I was able to pass pieces of legislation because they traveled with the budget. Now, that study said that we only passed one bill. I would say that five of my bills are now passed thanks to that budget. And therefore, the way you're not exactly counting apples to oranges when you look at it as one to one. I hope I'm being clear. Yeah, what you're saying, let me say it back to you, is that the Massachusetts legislature has a process in which it combines various proposals into an omnibus bill. So you take five or 10 or 15, whatever the number is, you put them together. And the Boston Globe counted. Uh, a bill that had five sections to it or five different proposals and counts it as one bill and says Massachusetts passed one bill, whereas in fact the way you look at it is you proposed five and five passed. Is that pretty much it? That, that is accurate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other, the other pieces of the study that were a little frustrating to me was um, so, for example, um, I'm going to pick on Colorado again because I already picked on them once. Um, in Colorado, legislators have a set number of bills they're allowed to file. Um, same is true in other states. I was with a senator from Washington who said, you know, we get to file five pieces of legislation a year and that's it. 
In Massachusetts, that is not the case. We can file as many bills as we want to file. I believe my total at the start of the term was 62, but we're up now um, because we've since filed other bills. So if we're comparing a legislator in Colorado who passes one bill and me in Massachusetts, I would have to pass 13 bills to have the same level of effectiveness as the one senator in Colorado because that's just how statistics work. So I, you know, I, I appreciate the call to be more effective and to do more. I, I think we should do a lot more too. There's a lot of things I want to accomplish by the end of the session. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't think articles that make unfair comparisons or statistically incorrect comparisons are particularly helpful in making that case. This may be a somewhat unfair question to ask you to speak for all of your fellow legislatures, but did the legislators take some umbrage at this Boston Globe article saying, hey, you didn't get very much done, whereas you think, well, you did? Um, I think that I, I haven't heard a lot of complaints about it. I mean, we, we don't actually all sit around and discuss the Boston Globe, although I'm sure the Boston Globe would love it if that is what we did. Um, but uh, we, I, I've spoken to a few colleagues um, where we really did talk about, like, but they forgot that we passed all, like, the gun bill is another very good example. I mean, um, if you look, uh, I'll call out particularly Representative Linsky, Representative Decker, um, they have dozens of bills that are included in that one piece of legislation, and they, I think, would deeply disagree that it has been an ineffective session for them. Well, it still has the Senate to go, that bill, the gun bill. You expect that there will be legislative action on uh, gun regulation in Massachusetts early in the uh, next next year in the next session? So I, I don't like to gaze into the crystal ball too often. However, I do hear uh, rumblings from the Senate that they are working on a gun bill. Um, I suspect, as often happens at the end of the day, the House and the Senate aren't as far apart as is often portrayed in the media. I mean, if you look at the supplemental budget, the media made it sound like we were worlds apart on different planets and could never come together. And in the end, that wasn't really true. I think that we are probably philosophically agreed on many, many pieces. Exactly how they shake out is going to be the question. But I hear that the Senate will be taking something up in the new year, and we'll look forward to seeing that and uh, getting something you know, to the governor's desk. Representative Sabadosa, one uh, thing that did the Massachusetts legislature no favors was the protracted discussion about a supplemental budget that took, well, from a layperson's point of view, a long time to pass, something that was a no-brainer, needed to be passed, eventually was. And a lot of people said that there's something wrong with the process that uh, that that, in, that that requires uh, months and months to ratify contracts and payment for contracts that were negotiated long ago. And I'm wondering whether you have some reflections or lessons learned that you could share with us with regard to this process regarding the supplemental budget that was finally just passed by the legislature. Well, I will I'll say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I, I personally, if it had been my choice, I would have brought a uh, pass legislation to uh, fund contracts as the contracts came in, but of course it's not my choice. Um, we did hold out a little bit because there were some last minute contracts that came in. Even after the House passed the bill, we got a few emails from uh, some of the community colleges that said, hey, three more contracts were ratified. Is there a way you can please put them into this bill and make sure that they're funded? So, um, you know, I, I think the decision was let's try to do 
them all at the same time rather than doing it piecemeal. I'm sure that that helps for budgeting purposes for the state because as many know, we are starting on a downward trend when it comes to revenue in the state. And so we are trying to be cautious. I think the other piece of that bill was really trying to make sure that we're responding appropriately to the migrants who are arriving in Massachusetts. I respect the criticism that we should do things faster. I also recognize that when the situation is constantly changing, it is very hard to do things quickly and also accurately. Um, when we don't know how many families are coming to the Commonwealth, we don't know how much shelter is going to cost, we don't know how many shelters we need, we don't know where the shelters are going to be stood up, we don't know what kind of wraparound services are available, we don't know if the federal government is really going to come and do legal clinics or if they're going to provide funding. All of those questions make it very hard to quickly respond. Now, one option could be to pass lots and lots of tiny stopgap measures. I don't think from the administration's point of view that would necessarily be helpful in planning. So I guess my very short answer to your question is that it's much harder than it looks. <laughs> but the uh, the longer answer is there are definitely ways we can improve the process. Um, most of them are not up to me, but I, I do offer my suggestions when when asked. That was a really deft answer to that question. Um, it's, is there is there something that the legislature is going to do so as to not repeat this? Is that a matter of some concern to your colleagues? Or, well, things will go on and hopefully somehow we won't I, be I mean, back. I think yeah, I think that everyone was was a little frustrated, particularly by the, the contracts and how prolonged that was for the people waiting for their money. I don't know what the plan is to potentially change this, but politics is a dance. So when two bodies are negotiating, there's always going to be um, something that one holds so that the other will give in. And I think that that is part of what we saw in this case. So I don't, I don't know that we can change the face of politics in the Massachusetts legislature, but we can sure try. Uh, Representative Sabados, I'd like to stay for another uh, minute or two at least with what you just said about downward projections about revenues for Massachusetts. Could you tell us more about that and what the concerns are and what the projections are and whether or not that uh, downward projection will be ameliorated somewhat or not at all by the uh, fair share amendment money? The projections that are coming in right now, I, I believe the last figures, and I, I could be wrong, so we'll take this with a grain of salt, but that we were down by about 700 million um, compared to where we thought we were going to be. So just to be clear, at the beginning of every year, there are hearings, they're happening um, at the end of the year, beginning of the year, they're happening right now. and. The House, the Senate, and the administration come together to establish what they call consensus revenue. So how much we think is going to come in. Now that's determined by a wide variety of economic factors. I won't go into all of them, but that's the number based on which we do our budgeting through the year. The consensus revenue for last year was higher than what actually happened. So what I think we're planning for the next year is to imagine that consensus revenue is going to be a little bit lower. Um, so that means that we're probably going to be uh, a little bit tighter fiscally until we see those revenue numbers pick up. I mean, uh, people certainly with higher interest rates, with higher inflation, have been spending a little bit less, and that's partly why we're seeing those revenue numbers decline. Rep. Sabadosa, I think I'll, I would appreciate 
some clarification on what the eventual resolution was with regard to paying for housing for people who are unhoused, how that worked out, what the legislature did, and whether or not there are still waiting lists and people, well, living on the street who we hoped wouldn't be there. There are very much still waiting lists. Um, so the administration capped the number of family shelters at 7,500. Um, we are, as, well, the last number I read was yesterday and we had about 250 families waiting. Now they have set up emergency shelters for families. Um, there was, they, they'd originally done this in the Department of Transportation. They've now moved families to shelter uh, elsewhere and they're talking about setting up bigger shelters. Um, the House and the Senate finally agreed at uh, $250 million to fund the shelters, but uh, we know that that's not going to be enough. That is a short-term number. And, and to go back to your questions about budgeting and why things take so long, that, that's part of the problem. Uh, we don't know how many families are going to continue to come to Massachusetts, and we, but we expect those numbers may get larger before they get smaller. So uh, we're going to have to set up the shelter that they're talking about in Quincy, as well as other shelters. That seems like a highly imperfect solution to the problem. Do you have any further thoughts on what Massachusetts might do to address this housing crisis? There is no really good, I, I, I personally think there is no really good short-term solution. Um, what we need in Massachusetts is more housing. I will say this to anybody who asks me, everyone who comes to the state uh, is someone we need. We have declining population in our state. We don't have uh, a lot of young people moving here. We don't have a lot of young families and the migrants that are moving here are offering all of those things plus a desire to work and start businesses. And that is fantastic, but there are always growing pains when you are trying to make more room. And what we are trying to do in Massachusetts right now is make more room. We had decades where we built very large houses uh, on uh, large plots of land, and that did not uh, really help for the future. So we're, we can't build our way out of this in six months or a year. We're going to have to build more housing. Uh, we're going to have to set up more shelters. And in the short term, there it's going to be hard and costly. But I hope at the end of the day, uh, looking back on this five years from now, we're going to see thriving communities of, of people who haven't maybe been in this country for very long, but who are now here, who have put down roots, who've opened businesses, and whose kids are going to our schools. So um, I'm not sure I had a great answer for your question, Bill, but I, I'm not sure a good one exists. Well, I want to continue this conversation about how we are going to solve and probably can solve the housing crisis in Massachusetts, and we'll continue this conversation with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. This Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m., Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist, releases certificates on the Shop 30 store. If you're feeling anxious, want to stop smoking, eat less, or drink less, whatever's got you stuck, Ruth Ann can help you get unstuck. Hypnosis has been around for thousands of years because it works. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Ruth Ann Lundeberg, hypnotherapist. Available this Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. If I give my heart to you, will you have? 
it with care. Fall head over heels with Melody of Love, great 50s love songs. A three CD collection of 75 classic love songs brought to you by MusicRewind.com. Writing Melody of Love, great 50s love songs now at musicrewind.com or call 855-798-5556 and pay only $19.98. Plus, get a bonus of reduced shipping by using promo code LOVE55. That's musicrewind.com or call 855-798-5556 now. Remember promo code LOVE55. This offer is available for a limited time to U.S. residents only and cannot be combined with any other offer. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa. While we were off the air, uh, Buzz had raised with the representative a question about whatever happened, and there is an answer to this uh, for sure, whatever happened to the commission or the committee that was established to come up with a recommendation for a new state seal that would replace the I think very objectionable and racist state school state seal that Massachusetts has had for as far as I can remember, I think since the inception of the Commonwealth. And yet, well, for a lot of legislative effort, we don't have much to show for it, I don't think. Representative Sabadosa, for would you please tell us what happened with that study committee or commission and where it stands? Well, could you start representative by describing the seal as it currently uh, looks. Of course. So uh, I will, one small correction bill, the Commonwealth has had many different seals. And if people come to visit the Massachusetts State House, I will show you the beautiful stained glass window that depicts all of the prior and current seals of the Commonwealth. Um, it's very fun to see, definitely worth the trip. Uh, so the current seal of the Commonwealth is um, a native individual um, in the center. And that native individual does not represent any of our local tribes. It was uh, created by an artist who felt that that was the ideal depiction and so took elements of different tribes from uh, across the state and country and kind of created this Frankenstein version of what perfection looked like, um, which I would argue is in and of itself a problem. Uh, and then over that uh, native individual's head or indigenous individual's head, there is a sword. It was the sword that was used to behead um, a chieftain on the Cape. And uh, it, then it says, um, peace through the sword, I believe is the translation of um, the, the Latin that you see. So uh, interestingly, there are many in the Commonwealth who do not feel that the motto, peace through the sword, first of all, is, uh, is appropriate. It really does sort of come from that like Roman conquering through violence and then establishing peace after you have conquered uh, mentality. 
So I, I think, first of all, we would say that's a problem. I would say the way that the Indigenous figure has been depicted is also a problem. And then the sword over uh, that person's head really doesn't, um, I think, make the Commonwealth look like a very welcoming place to all. Uh, and so the commission met for many, many months. Um, they did do a, a public opinion survey and various other things. Brian Bowles um, from Mass Humanities was on that commission, so he could probably be a great guest for the show if you want to go more in depth on this issue because he was there at every meeting. Um, but the commission in the end was unable to, amongst its members, decide what to recommend. There were some members who thought just take away the sword and it's great. Um, there are others who thought that uh, you know there, there should be more of a revamping. So the commission's real recommendation was that the Secretary of State, who is also the keeper of the state archives, um, the Secretary of State's a very interesting job. They do a lot of cool things. Um, but one of those being keeper of the archives should be the person to look at this. Uh, the Historical Commission also goes through the Secretary of State's office. So um, the report is with the Secretary of State's office now. Um, we've been in touch with that office and we're trying to understand how they'd like to proceed. If they're going to make recommendations, if they want legislation, what that needs to look like. So uh, it's a bit of a work in progress. It's, um, you know, I think in the in my mind, in the perfect world, uh, we would have moved a little faster. I, I personally really liked uh, the way Mississippi went forward with their change in their state flag. Um, and I believe Minnesota has recently followed suit as well. Um, and that was through a uh, ballot question and voters deciding what they wanted the seal to look like. I don't think we're quite there in Massachusetts. Well, I, I know we're not quite there in Massachusetts, but I, I do hope that we will keep the conversation going and, and end up getting to a, a good place for this. And I appreciate being informed that we have had many state seals. Apparently this state seal was adopted in 1900 and uh, or 1898 and then put into effect in Massachusetts in 1900 drawn by resident artist Edmund H. Garrett. Well it's been a long time coming to replace the seal and I take it that what we're waiting for now is a report back or a recommendation from the Secretary of State. Is that where we st where this stands? That is where it stands, yes. And you know, there there are people who are frustrated. There's been another bill filed that says you have to change it immediately. Um, I think the problem with that is always the question to what. Um, so we we do need to actually answer the question: What are we changing it to before we actually change it? So, That's easy, Bill. We just put Lindsay Sabados's face on the seal. It's easy. Oh dear God, that would be horrible. We should. That should not be a suggestion. I <laughs> I, I, I prefer a chickadee to that, quite honestly. <laughs> okay, Representative Sabados. Before we run, predictions into the crystal ball of what the new year should bring, and if you don't want to make predictions, how about what we should be looking for from the legislature as the this year draws to a close? What about so, next year? Housing, housing, housing. The housing bond bill is coming up for a hearing in January. We're going to be talking a lot about housing. The governor just issued her economic development plan. There will be an economic development bill that will come forward. If I had to predict, I think there will be another major climate bill. Um, and I certainly have a few things that I'm hoping cross the finish line, uh, but we'll we'll leave we'll leave it at that. Well, Representative Sabadosa, we re really appreciate your time, your insight, your leadership. Thank you so very much. We wish you everything good for this holiday season and a prosperous, wonderful, and healthy new year. Thank you to you as well. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. One person has died and another remains hospitalized after a three-alarm house fire in Orange that started just before midnight Wednesday. Reports came in of a structure fire at 99 West River Street where occupants may be trapped inside. After extricating the occupant, two injured parties were transported to Athol Hospital, then brought to Boston Hospital where the woman succumbed to her injuries. The home is a total loss and several dogs were also lost in the fire. While the fire is not believed to be suspicious, the cause is under investigation. East Hampton's interim superintendent will serve for another year, giving the school committee more time to find a permanent replacement. This week, the East Hampton School Committee voted 6-1 to one to extend interim superintendent Maureen Binienda's contract through the next school year, pending a state waiver. The additional time will allow members of the public more opportunities to provide feedback on the superintendent's search process. Six people who were arrested after taking part in a protest outside L3 Harris in Northampton in October were in Hampshire District Court yesterday. Pre-trial hearings were held to answer charges of resisting arrest, trespassing, and disturbing the peace during a rally organized by Demilitarized Western Mass, where protesters blocked the entry to the building and chained themselves to barricades. Four of the protesters were ordered to stay away from the building, while two, Packy Wheeland and Priscilla Lynch, will have their cases moved to trial. About 50 demonstrators gathered in front of the courthouse and cheered when the six came out to show support for the protest. Parked in the mostly sunny today, mild with a high of 48 to 52. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 40s, an overnight low of 28 to 34. Then for Saturday, partly to mostly sunny, 44 to 48. Could be some rain to end the day on Sunday with a high in the mid to upper 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Miss an episode of Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg? Want to hear the stories and perspectives of local business leaders? Click on podcasts at whmp.com. Talk the Talk, Western Mass Business Show, Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, The Hustler Files, Panorama, and more. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local talk in the Valley for the Valley. whmp.com. You've been miserable with joint pain for so long. You want and deserve relief, but you just keep putting off that call to QC Kinetics. Okay, now's the time. Listen up. QC Kinetics is rolling out something huge for the first time ever. It's a voucher for $500 off your first joint pain treatment. That's right, $500 off. Whether it's your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, the QC Kinetics voucher applies to any area. But this is a limited time offer, so no more putting off that call. QC Kinetics is the largest regenerative clinic in the country with tens of thousands of satisfied patients who are able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. So reach out to the team at QC Kinetics today and ask them, how can I get a $500 off voucher? They'll walk you through the steps and get you started on your way to relief. Don't wait. This is a limited time offer. Call for your free consultation today. QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Limited time only. Not valid with any other offer. Rachel Maddow's new book is Prequel, The American Fight Against Fascism. Get it now at Broadside Bookshop. Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America is new from Heather Cox Richardson. And The Vaster Wilds is a new novel from Lauren Groff, a story of faith and survival set in the wilderness of early New England. Order any book on the Broadside website, have it delivered anywhere, or pick it up at the store. Then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop.
And this is your state you with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We are so pleased he is with us today and that he has with him and us, Phyllis Keenan from Greenfield Community College, who just had an op-ed in the Greenfield Recorder that we really wanted to discuss on the show. Max Page, I leave the microphone and the first question to you, sir. Thanks, Bill. Yes, I'm really pleased to have Phyllis Keenan, professor at uh, at Greenfield Community College, uh, back on the show, actually, who was here last year, but I really wanted to come back because she just wrote a great op-ed. Good morning, Phyllis. Glad for you to be here. Good morning. And we'll actually also talk about another op-ed after that. We've had a lot of good work upon em emphasizing public higher ed in Massachusetts, in Western Mass. So Phyllis, tell us um, what you do first at Greenfield Community College, because I think that's so important that we get down to actually the work that that our faculty and staff do at, at our community colleges and state universities and UMass? Um, well, I teach math and I teach mainly the math that students take when they're not quite ready for college math. And I also teach the first semester students who are taking math that is not um, for their major. So liberal arts math. Um, what's really great about that is that many students um, really transform from being fearful of math and really wondering will they ever get a degree because they have to take a math course to being feeling confident and and they're competent in their math so that they can go forward and realize their dreams. Well, that's and Phil, tell us about you write about in this op-ed in the Greenfield Recorder about a particular family. I mean, I know you you teach over the years you've taught hundreds thousands of students, but tell us about this one kind of family. Um, that you you have inspired through your teaching. Um, yes, so I had a student who was a young adult who came into my class seeming a bit nervous as many do, uh, you know, coming into their first college math course. And by the end of the first month, she was coming in happy. She was talking to friends. She had made friends in class. Um, and by the end of the semester, she was so confident. And she said to me, um, my mom decided to get her GED because of me um, taking this class and feeling really good about college and just change, she could see the change in me. So she's gonna be in your class next semester. Um, and so that was really great. And then as that semester ended, I found out the following semester, her father was in my class because he had been so inspired by how his daughter had transformed at community college that he got his GED and was starting college for a goal that he had had for many, many years and finally believed that he could achieve that. So it really was a matter of not only affecting one student, but affecting a family. And I know at community colleges, we affect the communities and we just make the changes that people see in students are inspiring. Well, that is inspiring. I mean, I have to say it really always gives me chills. I've heard you, you've mentioned, you've talked about this before. It's really, it's one, example of a transformation of an of three individuals a whole a whole family and i just want to note for listeners that of all the colleges we've been hearing lots about colleges universities free speech and the like of all college students 50 percent of all public and private college students are in our community colleges community colleges is the main place where um the majority of young people get their first taste of college get welcomed in and it's such a crucial moment and I just so I'm so impressed by what you what you just described 
But Phyllis, in the piece that you wrote, this is we're talking listeners to Phyllis Keenan, professor at Greenfield Community College. In the op-ed you wrote in the Greenfield Recorder earlier this week, you lifted up the the Cherish Act. So tell us why what the Cherish Act is and why that's so important to advance uh, Greenfield Community College and all of public higher ed. So the Cherish Act um, has four components, and one component is more student supports. Many students come to community college needing extra support, whether it's academic coaching, peer tutoring, more advising. There is a there's a need for that, and that would be covered. Um, lifting up the wages for our faculty and staff. Our faculty for full time in Massachusetts make about half of what is made in com in community colleges in California, and also make much less than the UMass staff. Um, and the part-time faculty, um, sometimes called adjunct faculty or untenured, um, need to have job security and need to have health insurance and retirement plans, which they don't have now. Um, so those are two big things. Another thing is most of our colleges have a great need to have their buildings repaired. Um, there's many buildings where you'll walk through a hall and you'll see water dripping on the floor or a classroom that can't be used because of there being water damage and just that you can't put a computer in there because you're concerned of what's going to drip in there. Or in some cases, you know, parts of buildings or whole buildings are closed off because their HVAC system is not adequate. So some of this would cover the fixing these buildings um, because there's much, much need for fixing the buildings. And the fourth part is debt-free higher ed. There are many people who have graduated with degrees in the last however many decades who um, had debt. I mean, I pay, it took 10 years to pay off my debt for my undergraduate. Um, and so this would be a pathway for students who have financial need to be able to graduate without the debt that many students have now when they graduate. Perhaps we could interrupt for one second. I could pose this to Max Page, President of Massachusetts Teachers Association, the status of the Cherish Act. Can you bring us up to date on that? Is what Phyllis Keenan is telling us, is that going to come to pass? Is that reality? Is Will there be fruition? Because it, it sounds amazing and wonderful and needed and overdue. Max? So uh, what I would say, Bill, is, is it the Cherish Act is a bill that was filed. Um, the main Senate sponsor is our own Senator Joe Comerford. And on the House of Representatives side, one of the main co-sponsors is our own Western Mass Rep, Pat Duffy, from Holyoke. Um, and many others are on, on board. In fact, we have over 107 sponsors. Here's the, the, the good news, Bill, about the bill, is that, is that we've been making progress on all four parts that Bill has just named. Small progress, but bu building that. We have now the beginnings of truly debt-free community college, and we want to build on that and expand it out. A more investment in student supports, a little bit more money for buildings. We need billions more for that. And um, there were some good raises, at least for most in public higher ed. We haven't gotten that yet for community colleges. So people are understanding that the four foundations that Phyllis just laid out are crucial. But now we need to build it into law. So we're going to be working very hard this spring, and we're going to be launching a whole campaign starting in January to get the Cherish Act um, done this year. Well, let me ask you, Max Page, President of the Massachusetts Teachers Association and Professor Phyllis Keenan from Greenfield Community College. We were just speaking with Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, who said that the most recent projections with regard to revenue for the Commonwealth in the coming year 
has actually been reduced. Is this of concern with regard to money for higher ed and in particular for the community colleges? Well, here's what I would say, Bill, is that what um, also is true is that money, that the fair share revenues are predicted to be much in line with what we, the advocates, have always known, which is closer to $2 billion a year. So the legislature only spent $1 billion um, this year, but they expect the full revenues from fair share to be $1.6 to, to $2 billion. So there's a lot of money there. Also, I will add, sorry, on this beautiful Friday, uh, my... Uh, Annoyance that the legislature also gave $1 billion in tax cuts, some of which are very good for working people and some of which is a giveaway back to the very wealthy. So they probably should roll those back before a single dime is cut anywhere. Um, so I, we will obviously be working very hard to make sure we continue and advance the commitments in Greenfield Community College and in all of, in all of public higher ed. Could we go back to Phyllis Keenan and Greenfield yes. Community College for a moment, if we might? I'd like to know, with regard to your description of the results of what comes under the rubric, I think, of deferred maintenance, that is, not paying for crucial repairs to buildings so we can use them, what, what is the status? GCC is a beautiful college, um, and I usually think of it that way. Are there specific issues with regard to buildings and the property at GCC? I, I can tell you some things that happened in the last couple of years. I'm not quite sure what is left to be done because I'm really not part of, you know, the maintenance crew or the president in doing it. But I know that we had um, a problem a couple of years ago where a number of the people working in some of the administrative offices of advising and student affairs um, had mold in their offices and in their walls. And so there were a number of offices where those people had to vacate and move somewhere else and have all of that remediated, fixed. Um, the roofing had to be fixed because that's where the, the water was coming from. So I know that that has been taken care of. Um, but I will say um, a year ago when I walked into my, my class, there was water dripping in the hallway. There was water dripping in the classroom and um, there was a jackhammer happening so loud I couldn't hear. And so we had to move our class to somewhere else. So the jackhammer was working on, on repairing some things. However, you know, it can't really teach with, <laughs> with that going outside my window. So we moved to another classroom and, you know, those got addressed. Those things got addressed. Yeah. Well, let's say, Phyllis, absolutely, there's those issues. But one of the also the terrible issues is that at um, really more at the state universities and UMass, the people paying for the repairs and even the new buildings are the students because so much of the cost of uh, new building construction is not borne by the state but is done through student fees. And that turns into student debt. So we add to the problem even more. Uh, there are billions of dollars across the entire system of deferred maintenance um, that really the state once paid for fully and now so much of it is shunted back on to the campuses to pay for. So one thing I heard um, a person who was head of maintenance at another college say is that many of these buildings were built 50, 60 years ago and everything has a shelf life and things are needing to be repaired or replaced at colleges and that's part of the reality of it and we need the state to fund that because they're very expensive and um, if it's not funded by the state, then we have to charge the students for it, and the students are paying as much as they can. 
That's right. Well, listen, thank you, Phyllis Keenan, professor at Greenfield Community College and MTA member. Thanks for being on and thanks for the great op-ed in the Greenfield Recorder. As we go forward with the fight for the chair shack, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch and have you back on. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Keenan. Thank you, Max Page, President of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Thanks for telling us about Cherish. Well, we do cherish our higher education uh, professionals and educators and all of you who make life in this Commonwealth and for the next generation so much better. Thank you both so very much. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Fitting in can really feel like it matters, especially when you're in high school. At the Hartsbrook High School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming. It just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or using technology as a tool, you can thrive at Hartsbrook High School. And you can thrive academically while being an integral part of a community intentionally focused on belonging. Hartsbrook students take their learning out of the classroom, into nature, into the community, learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook prepares a person to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for themselves and the community. Is Hartsbrook right for your teenager? For parents and caregivers, there's a Discover Hartsbrook High School evening, February 6th. There are visiting days for students, January 23rd and February 6th. Register at hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School, Waldorf Education, Early Childhood through High School on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hadley. Every time you open your energy bill, you cringe. And with good reason, because you're paying too much. The easy answer is solar. And taking advantage of solar energy with Franklin First Federal Credit Union is easy. Our solar loan puts solar on the table. And a local expert can show you all the ways it pays to install solar. Visit franklinfirst.org slash solarloans for more details. That's franklinfirst.org slash solarloans. Franklin First Federal Credit Union, federally insured by NCUA. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm. And this is Art Beat with Donabel Cassis on Talk the Talk. Donabelle has with her and us today a very special guest, and we will, we will be talking about an exhibit I can't wait to hear about. Donabelle Cassis, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Bill and Buzz. Good morning. Happy Friday. And I want to bring your attention to this amazing show that is up right now in Holyoke at Pulp. You know, there's so many shows going on with small works, but this is also a small works show, but it's really unique in that it sort of um, gives you an eye into the artist process like I don't think I've seen 
really before. Um, it's a show called Northeast Deconstructed. Um, it is up at Pulp Holyoke through January 7th, and today we are joined by Dean Brown, owner and also artist of Pulp. Welcome, Dean. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Now, Dean, this is such an interesting show. Um, now, it's, you know, art journals, if anyone's known about art journals, they're like written journals in that they sort of document a daily practice or a monthly practice or something sort of on the side of sort of your main practice. And it incorporates probably some writing, but it also has like drawings, scribbles, images, and other materials. You asked 18 artists to take apart their art journals. And I'm just like, what? I would never do that. But um, tell us how this show came about. Sure. Um, well, the seed of this show started about five years ago. Um, there's a, a, a wonderful local artist, Lynn Peterfreund, who I had a studio visit with. And on her shelf were these, um, uh, you know, rows and rows of art journals going back to uh, 2012. And wow. I, she shared some of them with me. And there were some of what I thought the most powerful, intuitive uh, work that I had seen of hers. And I asked her if she'd be willing to open one up. And she adamantly refused and said, no, they're staying in the book. Um, yeah. But it started me on this process of thinking about artists and their relationship to their sketchbooks and their journals, and um, how often there's a freedom and um, a freedom of expression and self, you know, lack of self-consciousness that is occurring. Well, you know, and it's also very private. Like, I'm not going to show anyone this. <laughs> this is my own little private <laughs> journal. And how dare you yes. sort of break up my yes. private journal and expose me to the world. So keep yeah, going. They're, they're definitely, yeah, so there was um, all sorts of responses like that. And um, Two years ago, we had um, <clears throat> we uh, I asked another artist, Dean Nimmer, who I had found a pile of his journals in his basement studio, if he'd be willing to open one up for a show, and he was, and it was hugely successful. And we basically did the same thing: a grid of about forty pages, and they just sold out. Um, wow! And it was personal, and it was hard for him to get to that place of vulnerability and. Um, but once that happened, it made me really think we need to plan a journal show because if nothing else, it's we're discussing the relationship between this private work and what's happening in this work and the artist. And then to be able to share that with the public is really a peek behind the curtain. I really <laughs> think you're sort of giving us a little privy. Yes, Bill. <laughs> I, I'd love to know, do these pieces, do these sketches, do they become final work? Are they the genesis of things that we ultimately see? Or do they generally remain private and you're just giving us a peek into what goes on in artists' minds? Yeah, it's a bit of everything. There's definitely some artists whose process is to create these sketches that they then decide, oh, this one is a plant worth watering and I'll bring it to a canvas. Um, but I think there's a million stories of a million artists who all have their own reasons for why they journal and why they do sketchbooks. And um, that was the big surprise for me. I went in, I think, with preconceived ideas about what the sketchbook and journal was, and I came away with it's as varied as, as we are. Well, well, tell us, give us some examples of what some of these sure. journals contain. Um, 
Yeah, well, I, 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 um, I copied a, um, a few lines from Lynn Petercoin's um, artist statements, but I wanted to read that. Um, Since 2012, I've made a drawing every day chronicling what I've seen and done and felt. One of the precursors of this project was the daily heart I drew every day as a form of magical thinking on behalf of my husband's upcoming, happening, and then healing from open heart surgery. This drawing as, is my way of giving form to a wish, a study of anatomy, meditation, a hope. So for her, she literally drew hundreds and hundreds of hearts, one a day, as a way to navigate her husband's serious health condition. Um, I and just these were an, anatomical-based so hearts, yes? Some, what was so interesting in the way that we organized them was they started out almost abstract as these auras of color. And over the years, the next couple of years, they really became more anatomical with more notes about the medical conditions. So it was, again, this process for her of dealing with a very serious real life uh, situation through her art. Um, That's just beautiful. There's another local like... artist, Sean, Sean Sawicki, who's one of my favorite local artists. Uh, he grew up in the Valley. He would, he would have been the kid in the back of math class with his skateboard, doodling and carving into the desk. Um, and he never stopped doodling. He never stopped making marks on paper. And so he thinks of his journaling as it's a portable studio. So wherever he goes on his trips, he, he has it with him. I, you know, he's been known to pull off the side of the road and just start doodling or, um, so, you know, for me, it's, it's seeing this work and, and, and how Sean brings the world into his notebooks. Um, it's just such an it's such a privilege for me to be able to see. Now, these journals to me seem like little companions. I mean, they are sort of your other self in this little physical form, which I absolutely love. Now, your show, which is up right now, these journals are uh, exhibited and these pages are for sale, which is like, what? Yes. <laughs> Tell yeah. us about that, please. <laughs> Um, well, I just, I decided uh, I had to really talk with each artist individually. And so this was a over a year long process of uh, making sure that they were comfortable. I didn't want to put any artists in a situation where they felt like I was somehow uh, taking advantage of their vulnerability. And so each artist got to the place where they knew that I was going to be selecting work from the journal, cutting it out and putting it on a grid on the wall um, to be sold. And um, I will say, for example, Lynn, who came to the show, um, her response is she's come full circle. She just thinks this is an incredible experience as an artist for her to see her journal pages on the wall, to open herself up vulnerably like this. Um, the response has been really overwhelmingly positive and we've sold a lot of work. And I think people want to see this. Um, it really is a peek into behind the curtain of artists. It's also I think sometimes the most, the, the freshest work that the artist is doing, there's no self-consciousness, there's no barrier. It's just happening with, um, yes. So. Are, some I mean, in, are some in color, some in black and white? What's the- Yeah, yeah, there's some, there's um, basically, I, I sort of, you know, knowing that I was gonna be hanging 305 pieces of work. Oh my, I, I don't um, even know how you did that, yeah. <laughs> I, I did consciously decide to have some in color and some work was in black and white. Um, I really wanted to have a range of styles um, and ages. And so, uh, yeah, everything. Well, 
You're just listening now to Dean Brown from Pulp in Holyoke. There's an amazing show called Northeast Deconstructed, a journal of inquiry in journals, pages uh, displayed. Um, it's up through January 7th, Dean. Like, what are the hours yeah, and January, how can we see this? January 7th, we're open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 11 to 4, or by appointment. I would like to know, have you ever done anything like this before? Um, not to this uh, scale, no. <laughs> Will you do this Maybe again the first is the other question. <laughs> I just want to point um, out. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. If, if you go to pulpholyoke.com, you can get a taste of what this exhibit looks like, and it's truly remarkable. Thank you so much, you. Dean, for sharing your show today and your vision. Really, this is part of your vision, so thank you. And one more time, one one more time, Dean Brown. When is Pulp open? When can we come see the exhibit? Uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, eleven to four. Through January seventh. Through through January seventh. Yes. Well, this has been Artbeat with Donna Belcasis and Dean Brown from Pulp. Thank you both so very much. Thanks for bringing this amazing exhibit to our attention, and thank you for sharing. Really, we are in your debt. Thank you, Bill and Donna Bell. Beat goes on. Drums keep pounding. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling more comfortable and optimistic? Recorded meditations can help. Doctors have said that it makes their job simpler. Nurses tell us their patients may go home sooner and need less pain medication. Cancer Connection creates custom meditations for people affected by cancer, and you don't even have to come in. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. WHMP Northampton and W. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And I am thrilled. I am absolutely thrilled. We have in studio, um, well, first of all, we have healers in the studio, primary care physicians. We have Dr. Kate Atkinson, who's the owner of Atkinson Family Practice with offices in Northampton and Amherst. And joining her, literally, is Dr. Shane Taylor, who's come up from Tennessee, a Tennessee physician who's um, offering, uh, in a uh, teamed-up basis, uh, something called concierge medicine. For those who haven't uh, heard of it, I just want to, well, I guess first I'll start with you, Dr. Kate Atkinson. Um, what is concierge medicine, and well, why are you engaging in it? So I think most people know that our practice provides pretty full-service care. We see people same day when they're sick. But for some people, that's still not enough. They need more time with the doctor. And so concierge is a practice that's been going on nationwide for a few years where people actually pay a service to have even more one-on-one -on -one time with their doctor and a few more perks added in. Um, and when I met Dr. Taylor, it really felt like this would be a good fit to add something extra to our practice. We're not changing Atkinson family practice. We're staying the same. 
But Dr. Taylor is offering a special concierge where if you want to see her, there is an annual fee. And as a result of that, there's a bunch of extra perks and you get more of her time. Why do we get more time? Well, the truth is I see 25 to 30 patients a day. I mean, that's just the reality in an insurance-based I just want to stop you there. Yeah. How many hours a day do you work to well, see 25 or 30 It's a lot. I mean, a that's usually an you know, eight- or nine-hour day. Um, they're 15-minute office visits. Luckily, I know my patients really well. I think I provide good care, but not as good as if I could spend an hour with each person. So let's face it. Um, if Dr. Taylor is only seeing five or six patients a day, we wouldn't be able to pay the bills, and that's why we need the additional fee. I mean, that's really just the matter of cranking the numbers. And... I know that somewhere lurking in the shadows here is, as always, insurance companies. Mm -hmm. What role does insurance play in uh, how much time you can spend, how much effective medical uh, care and attention you can give to your patients? Well, I I think you know I'm opinionated. The United States healthcare system is evil. It's horrible. Patients uh, get the dregs. And I've been fighting against that at Atkinson Family Practice for 15 years, trying to make sure that even though we take insurances, we provide good care. But at some point, it just, the numbers just don't work out, trying to make it work with as little as they're paying for us and how high our expenses are. Um, ever since the pandemic, our expenses have increased by 30 to 50%. So we're hoping the fees with, pan, with um, concierge may help offset that to some degree so that we don't have to cut back on our patients. This is Dan. Is the issue reimbursement rates? Have the insurance companies been reducing that? What's the the issue with that? Yes, the insurance companies are actually paying less than they did 10 years ago. But even if they paid the same, my expenses have increased. If you go to a restaurant and they have to pay more for their staff, they increase their costs. I cannot set my rates. In America, if you take insurances, you get what they pay you, period. I'm sure their profits have suffered enormously. (laughs) I want to turn uh, our attention to Dr. Shane Taylor. Welcome to Massachusetts, doctor. Thank you so much. It feels really good to be here. Well, what brought you here from Tennessee? Um, We had been living in Nashville for about 10 years, and I think we were just, you know, ready for a change personally and professionally for our family. We have two young kids, and um, we wanted to be closer to family and in New England. I remember seeing an article in the Daily Hampshire Gazette that said that you have been practicing concierge medicine, that you've been uh, no, imaging no, it. No, oh, you haven't no. been. You Incorrect. wanted to. Yeah. So I've been practicing primary care like Dr. Kate in the traditional you know, model where I'd be seeing you know, 15, 20 patients a day and um, trying to get, um, get it all done and still have the strength and energy to come home to my young family. So... Um, it's really hard to crank out those numbers um, and just interact with so many people who have needs per day. Um, it's hard as, as a physician, as a mom, to then go home and do it again with your family. So um, the concierge model really allows me to have um, a smaller number of patients. Um, that's the beauty of it, is that I can have a smaller number of patients. I can provide the patients with better longer visits. And then when I come home, I might still have some leftover to give to my family. Bill, we, we know that it's really hard to find primary care practitioners, people who uh, uh, become physicians and want to go into primary care. Because in some cases, uh, I have read that literally nurses in the hospital sometimes bring home more money than full-time uh, family doctors, including uh, Dr. Kate here. Um, it's troubling. Bill. Well, I'd like to know more about primary care because my understanding is, uh, Dr. Atkinson, that primary care rates 
are the lowest rates that are reimbursed by insurance companies. Whereas for specialists, and I put, I'll put that in air quotes, I don't mean to make them some highfalutin kind of category compared to primary care, but compared to primary care, those specialized services have much higher reimbursement rates. So there is an economic incentive for doctors to not go into primary care, which is where most of us get most of our services, medical services, most of the time. I'd appreciate your perspective on so, that. So definitely there's an economic advantage to being a specialist. It's why it's so hard for us to recruit doctors to go into primary care. The truth is we actually get paid the same amount for office visits. What's different is that our overhead and our the paperwork we have to do in primary care is enormous. In the past few months, there's been a shortage of Adderall. So I've been spending hours every day helping to call around to different pharmacies for each patient to find who has medicine for a child. And then there was blood pressure med medicine that there was a shortage on. And then if they go to urgent care and they uh, need to follow up with me, or if they go to the school and the school nurse needs us to write a different kind of form, um, if the specialist ordered an MRI and we have to get the approval from the insurance company for the patient to get the MRI that a specialist ordered. I mean, um, years ago, I hired a nurse who'd been working in a surgical office, and she said, oh, I'm used to paperwork. And after a week, she said no, and she quit. She <laughs> said, I had no idea how bad the paperwork was in primary care. Mm -hmm. So I either need to do that in addition to seeing 28 patients a day, or I have to pay people to do that. And after I have to pay people, and I'm getting the same amount as a surgeon, I'm bringing home 30 to 60 percent less because of my overhead. Uh, this is Dan. Is that coming from the insurance company, the government? I mean, what's creating all of that bureaucratic paperwork? A lot of it paperwork? is insurance company. Also, our government, the state government, Massachusetts, is terrible. Um, in, in what sense? Because we have some politicians on <laughs> I these know. radio I shows. Will, I will be happy to talk to them. Oh, please. They know who I am, and I talk to them all the time, and I swear I feel like they roll their eyes. They do not understand how bad it is. I think their point is that I don't know how hard it is for them to affect change on their part, in, in all fairness. But the truth is that every time there's a good idea in Massachusetts, we're a very liberal state, let's pass a law and have somebody do another form. Because the idea that if you do another form, that'll somehow improve patient care is ludicrous. And yet it's the, the system that we're stuck in. But it adds to your cost. I mean, that's what, you, that's what I'm understanding here significantly. Cost. It definitely does. Bill. What I would like to understand a bit more about is what I would receive as a patient in this concierge practice? Do I have better access? Mm -hmm. Do I get to talk to a doctor as opposed to immediately going off to either the uh, ER or to urgent care? Uh, what is it that I receive for this fee that I will pay? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And that is um, hopefully our goal is we really are gonna try to avoid sending people to the hospital unless it is truly, truly necessary. We are gonna have extended um, hours where patients can call or text um, our staff directly and have an actual human on the other line respond to their text, which is just really a joy in this uh, day and age where you call and you get a recording and you have to push this and you have to push that and to get to actually to talk to a person. We're really hoping to um, avoid that. The patients call and somebody picks up. Um, our hope is that we can do um, same-day office visits um, for sick people so that they're never really having to wait more than 24 hours to get in to be seen by their by their doctor, an MD doctor. Um, we are um, also offering 90-minute um, physicals so that we can really like 
get into all of the nitty gritty about what you want to achieve this year, how you want to stay healthy, how we can keep you healthy, what your goals are, um, offer a little bit more lifestyle coaching. So, um, you know, when you're seeing 20 or 30 patients a day and you want to advise somebody about, you know, exercising or meditation or nutrition, you just simply do not have the time in a 15 to 20 minute encounter to explain those things that are really important to somebody's health. And so to have 60 or 90 minute visits kind of allows you to. And then um, the patients get to benefit from a lot of the additional services that are offered at AFP. So we have health coaches, we have a chiropractor, we have massage therapists. um, And those are services that are available to every patient at AFP. Um, But there are some perks that are thrown into that membership fee that you can access those, um, those services too. I think that's a really good segue into my question for Dr. Kate uh, Atkinson. Uh, By uh, bringing in, if you will, or by Dr. Shane Taylor joining you um, and creating this concierge practice within your practice, I think a lot of people are concerned that maybe people who don't have the money to pay for a concierge practice who are relying on their health insurance or sometimes even mass health, that they'll be shortchanged because there's just not enough medical attention that you could provide. Um, to accommodate everybody, both those with assets and those with, uh, without. So what's the response to those people? Well, I'm, I'm really hearing this, and I'm seeing a lot of personal attacks about the fact we're bringing in concierge and making it seem like a la-di-da uh, system where we're only taking care of the rich people. But I've been taking care of patients on mass health for over 20 years, and literally I lose money every time I see a patient with mass health. And I plan to continue seeing them. We are not getting rid of any patients we have in the practice. We're going to continue to provide them excellent care. The concierge is just an extra thing. And yes, there is a fee, but it's just the reality. Um, If you go to the store and you want the fancier whatever, we pay more. Um, I hate our system. I don't want to argue in favor of our insurance system. It's a terrible one. But I'm not in a position to fix it. I'm trying hard to fix it. As I said, I'm meeting with legislators. I'm on the trustees of the Massachusetts Medical Society. I'm in meetings every week until nine o'clock at night trying to fix things. But at some point, I've got to take care of myself and our practice and keep ourselves afloat. Uh, Before we take a break, what's the name of the new practice? Atkinson Concierge Medicine. We just add that concierge part of it. Yeah. That's really great. We're going to be coming right back. We're going to be continuing our conversation with Dr. Shane Taylor and Dr. Kate Atkinson about concierge medicine, their practice. It's fascinating. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You've been miserable with joint pain for so long. You want and deserve relief, but you just keep putting off that call to QC Kinetics. Okay, now's the time. Listen up. QC Kinetics is rolling out something huge for the first time ever. It's a voucher for $500 off your first joint pain treatment. That's right, $500 off. Whether it's your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, the QC Kinetics voucher applies to any area. But this is a limited time offer, so no more putting off that call. QC Kinetics is the largest regenerative clinic in the country. 
with tens of thousands of satisfied patients who are able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. So reach out to the team at QC Kinetics today and ask them, how can I get a $500 off voucher? They'll walk you through the steps and get you started on your way to relief. Don't wait. This is a limited time offer. Call for your free consultation today. QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Limited time only. Not valid with any other offer. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation about uh, Atkinson Concierge Medicine practice, which is, I think is going to continue to have offices in Northampton and Amherst. Is that right, Dr. Kate? That's correct, yes. And uh, we are speaking to Dr. Kate Atkinson and Dr. Shane Taylor. So, Bill, you were you said there's an elephant in the room. Yeah, I would like to know from uh, you, Dr. Kate Atkinson or Dr. Taylor, how much does it cost per year? If I want to have this access, I want this concierge medicine, what's the cost? Yeah, you have a right to know that. Um, the starting is... $3,500 a year for an individual. There are obviously discounts for couples and for whole families. And people still need to have insurance, and they still are charged deductibles and copays. So it is not for people who have a tight pocketbook, unfortunately. And if people want to find what? out... Oh, I'm sorry, Bill. I just wanted to... Uh, could you please tell this, listeners uh, how can they find out more about your rate structure, and what the services are. Well, you can go to our website, AtkinsonFamilyPractice.com, and there's a whole section on the concierge medicine. You click on that link. This is Dan. Do you pay that one time, or can you pay it over every month? So the first year, we need people to prepay because it costs a lot of money to put this whole system into place. But after that, it'll be quarterly. Quarterly. Okay. Okay, Bill. So... I think the other elephant in the room is this. I, I understand what you've said about s seeing mass health patients, and I appreciate your devotion to people and patients who have less economic means. But the question that is raised by concierge medicine is, if this is the best practice, isn't everyone entitled to it? Why should this be based on ability to pay? Yes. Yes. We all should be entitled to that, absolutely. And it's always what I've striven for. As a matter of fact, um, we have opened this to existing Atkinson family pra practice patients, and most of them have not elected to join concierge because they say, honestly, they already get concierge level of care. Um, I don't have the long visits that Shane has. But the, the truth is that I do believe in this, and I've been practicing what I think is the highest level care I've been able to provide. Um, if we could get single-payer health care or a better health care system where we didn't make corporations richer, I think that could be something we strive for. Um, the truth is that for 10 years, I've not been able to recruit a doctor, and I finally found a doctor who's fabulous, um, but she didn't want to be as burnt out as the rest of us, and I don't blame her. Um, so they're always talking about what's the problem with physician burnout, and they don't look at the big elephant in the room, which is our insurance companies and the amount of ridiculous hoops you have to jump through to provide the kind of care you want to provide to patients really just wears us down. 
Dr. Shane Taylor, um, on the flip side, what challenges do you see before you in order to implement this? Uh, sure. Um, I think uh, we're going to come up against some staffing issues pretty quickly. Um, I think the demand for this will be able to you know, outweigh my ability to provide care for the people who might be interested in a program like this. Um, as we all know, um, I just moved here to, it's really hard to find primary care in the Valley. I mean, I couldn't get, I can't get a pediatrician for my own kids. Um, it was really hard for us to find doctors. And so there just really aren't that many doctors in the area. And so, um, and the the beauty of this model is that we're limiting it to a, a small number of patients, right? Because it doesn't work if I have 2,000 patients. Like it only works if you have a short number, a short panel of like, you know, maybe 300, maybe 350 patients. And so I think it'll probably, um, our ability to exceed, uh, to uh, provide that care is going to get um, tight pretty quickly. And then also I think just staffing for it. I mean, um, if you ask any single doctor's office, um, since the pandemic, we've had a really hard time staffing, um, getting um, getting nurses, getting front desk staff, all of that. So I think recruiting and retaining people and finding maybe some other docs that would be willing to join this model, I think is going to be hopefully in our future. Well, uh, let me ask a, a question which might have a more, a lighter answer, yeah. which is uh, as a primary care physician, yeah. you, the world was your oyster. You yeah. could have gone anywhere in the United yeah. States other than the incredible Dr. Kate yeah. Atkinson, what brought you to this region? Yeah, um, I took a road trip with my husband, and we said, where are we going to live? And we drove around, and we drove around through a few states, and um, this felt really good. We had um, some values that were important to us that we wanted to um, have as we joined and fostered a new community, um, and that felt really good in Northampton. And so... Um, we took a risk and we left the house that we really liked and our jobs that we loved and took our kids and our pets and came on out. Dr. Kate, you said that Dr. Shane is a, a really skilled physician that you wanted to partner with. Um, how did you know that? What is it about her that, that attracted you to her? Well, if you read her resume, it's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was, she was a faculty um, in a big, huge tertiary care center and came with high recommendations and from, from patients and from, from colleagues. Um, she also is internal medicine boarded and pedi pediatrician boarded. So what she really wants is higher complexity. She really loves an intellectual challenge with a hard diagnosis. Um, so for her to, to have that you know, concierge bent make sense, Every morning in our office, we do these things called huddles where everybody gets on and we discuss cases that are difficult. And ever since Shane started a few weeks ago, it's been amazing. She knows so much. She's just a wealth of information. We're all learning from her. And she's excited about it. I still remember when she said, oh, I just love high blood pressure. And the rest of us are like, you love high blood pressure? Um, so, so what I, she... I, I have a nephew who's an emergency room physician who says, I love penetrating wounds. <laughs> Same thing. Um, so it's just a real gift to have her. I mean, she adds so much to our practice mm -hmm. and to all of us. And um, so it's not just the financial piece. I think she's also adding really high quality medicine. This is Dan. If this model works out for you financially, uh, where would it go in two years from now or five years from now? What's the vision? Well, my vision is hopefully a year from now to have a second concierge doctor and stop there. And that's just so they can cover each other. They can take vacations because for now I'm going to be... Uh, Shane's backup until we get another doctor. 
Um, I don't ever want to replace what we have at Atkinson Family Practice. I've been taking care of some of those patients for 25 years. You know, babies who I was the first person to touch when they were born are coming to me with their babies now. It doesn't get any better than that. Um, but it would be really great if it brings in enough money so that maybe I could de-stress all of the PCPs, you know, decrease the numbers people have to see every day so that all of us are less burnt out. And, and you know, I'm already seeing that this seems possible. And mm -hmm. it's it's really helping because uh, in medicine, everybody's been depressed. And just knowing that there's some options and hope is really important. Mm -hmm. Bill. I'd like to know one of the primary goals and one of the primary uh, attractions of this concierge practice is that if I feel I'm in a situation, I don't know what to do, I don't know if I'm supposed to go to the ER, I don't know if I'm supposed to go to urgent care, I don't know if I can stay home, then instead of calling a practice and uh, speaking with whoever happens to be on call, I can reach my doctor. Is that a major part of this concierge practice? Yes, but she is one person with little kids at home. So she's not a 24-7 doctor. I keep telling people concierge, they say, oh, the 24-7 doctor. No, that is not our model. Our model is between 8 a.m. and 9 p.m. You can text her and say, I'm trying to figure out what to do. If it's an emergency in the middle of the night, please go to the ER. Because if she's up every night, we're going to lose her. And she's just too good. And I need that great brain working. Um, so really, that's not the, the strength of concierge is to prevent that. Preventive care works. And I can tell you this, in 25 years of practice, all the time I'll run into an ER doctor and he'll tell me we never see your patients in the ER. We're really proud of that. So that should not be happening very often. Most of the time, if it's a true emergency, you know and you go to the emergency room. What we're doing is preventing all those emergencies. We're controlling your disease, giving you the best health care possible, um, using modern medicine and preventive care, which works, and the studies back that up. And yet, the, and yet the economics of it doesn't reimburse that very model that you're developing. And I think that's the key part of it. Exactly. Right? Um, primary care is the only medical care that the more primary care doctors are in a com community, the lower the cost of health care for the whole community. But you're not rewarded for such We're not so rewarded well. for that. No, we are yes. nickeled and dimed. So um, if you would, for especially do it slowly for those people who might be in their car, how do they contact you? How do they get more information about your practice? You go to the Atkinson Family Practice website. It's atkinsonfamilypractice.com. And at the very top, it says concierge, and there's a little thing you click on. There's an information sheet. You can fill it out. And Adriana Piantadosi, who was on last time, is um, our concierge coordinator, and she will contact you and answer your questions, send you the contract. You can look at it. We have no secrets and see if it looks like it's a fit for you. If so, she meets with you and goes through it step by step. You should know our phones are ringing off the hook. People are very interested in this. So it could take, you know, even a week or two to hear back from her. Um, but she is getting back to everyone. She's very conscientious. So it's AtkinsonFamilyPractice.com. Dr. Shane Taylor, it's so nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having welcome, us. Well, welcome to our region. And uh, we're really looking forward to uh, having you as part of our medical community here. Dr. Atkinson, thank you for everything thank that you, you do so much. Yeah. in the past and what you're going to do in the future. We're going to be right back with a very special guest, Gregory Gibson, the father of Galen Gibson, who was murdered at Simons Rock College, uh, is going to be joining us and talking about his new book, Mooney's Manifesto, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. 
One person has died and another remains hospitalized after a three-alarm house fire in Orange that started just before midnight Wednesday. Reports came in of a structure fire at 99 West River Street where occupants may be trapped inside. After extricating the occupant, two injured parties were transported to Athol Hospital, then brought to Boston Hospital where the woman succumbed to her injuries. The home is a total loss and several dogs were also lost in the fire. While the fire is not believed to be suspicious, the cause is under investigation. East Hampton's interim superintendent will serve for another year, giving the school committee more time to find a permanent replacement. This week, the East Hampton School Committee voted 6-1 to one to extend interim superintendent Maureen Binienda's contract through the next school year, pending a state waiver. The additional time will allow members of the public more opportunities to provide feedback on the superintendent's search process. Six people who were arrested after taking part in a protest outside L3 Harris in Northampton in October were in Hampshire District Court yesterday. Pre-trial hearings were held to answer charges of resisting arrest, trespassing, and disturbing the peace during a rally organized by Demilitarized Western Mass, where protesters blocked the entry to the building and chained themselves to barricades. Four of the protesters were ordered to stay away from the building, while two, Packy Wheeland and Priscilla Lynch, will have their cases moved to trial. About 50 demonstrators gathered in front of the courthouse and cheered when the six came out to show support for the protest. Parking and mostly sunny today, mild with a high of 48 to 52. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 40s, an overnight low of 28 to 34. Then for Saturday, partly to mostly sunny, 44 to 48. Could be some rain to end the day on Sunday with a high in the mid to upper 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Season's greetings. I'm Thomas Macheco, the President and CEO of Greenfield Savings Bank. And I'm Shonda Richardson, the Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer. On behalf of all of us at GSB, we want to wish everyone a happy, healthy, and safe holiday season and a happy new year. We also want to thank all of our customers for choosing to bank locally with GSB and GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services. And we want to thank all of our employees for their efforts on behalf of the bank this year. The holiday season is such a wonderful time of the year with holiday decorations, lights, and spending time with ones we love. And we encourage everyone to shop locally as much as possible and support our local businesses and restaurants. Again, from all of us at Greenfield Savings Bank, happy, happy holidays and, and happy new year. Greenfield Savings Bank, greenfieldsavings.com, with offices and ATMs throughout Franklin and Hampshire counties. Member FDIC, member DIF, an equal housing lender. It's your home for the resistance, Tom Hartman. Weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Before we took a break, I, I uh, 
sort of teased our next uh, guest, our current guest, who is calling in from Gloucester, Massachusetts. Um, I, there's a couple of things I have to say by way of uh, an introduction, by way of disclosure. First of all, um, I, the way that I have come to know this uh, man is rather extraordinary. I represented Wayne Lowe in 1992 through 94 in a trial involving uh, a mass shooting at Simons Rock College in Great Barrington, which uh, took two lives, uh, six people uh, were injured, and countless people were what we call secondary victims. Their lives will never be the same as a result of Wayne Lowe having taken a, uh, a, a an AK-style uh, assault weapon and shooting anything that moved uh, at this time of year. Um, I want to warn people that if anybody who would be affected by hearing about that, again, sometimes they, uh, we hear that people um, who were traumatized in that fashion don't want to be exposed to it, so I'm warning anyone. What we're going to be talking about is uh, Gregory Gibson's experience. He was the father of Galen Gibson, a 19-year-old beloved by everyone, uh, son of Gregory Gibson, who... Um, was uh, running out of the library in order to see if he could help anyone when he heard the shooting commence, and he ended up being uh, murdered by my client, Wayne Lowe. Um, there is a, it's a, it's an oddity, certainly, in the fact that Gregory Gibson is willing to come on the show that's co-hosted by Buzz Eisenberg um, in uh, his first book, which was a widely acclaimed book called uh, Gone Boy, which was... Um, acclaimed by by many. It was, uh, in fact, called the book of the year, I think, by Entertainment uh, Tonight, or my memory is failing me, but anyway, Entertainment Weekly, uh, the book of the year in 1999. I was called an unctuous weasel because of my role in the trial. Um, nevertheless, Gregory Gibson has proven himself to be a rather extraordinary person. Uh, his uh, activism around gun violence, around... Uh, the prevalence of guns in this country and uh, around the endless assault that we all suffer by reading day after day about mass shootings has caused him to be a really important and remarkable force in the discussion about guns in the United States. And I want to say welcome to you, Gregory Gibson. Well, it's good to be here, Buzz. Thanks for inviting me. I think the first thing I just want to ask is um, I'm the man who represented the murderer of your son. How is it that you still are willing to talk to me? Back in the weasel den, is it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, it's an interesting evolution. I mean, uh, and I suppose primarily time is the uh, is the major factor. After a while, it just, after the pain uh, diminishes, you look around and you realize that we're all living lives. We've all got stuff to do. You were doing your job. I was doing my job. And at the time, those were the emotions involved. But, you know, over the years, it's, it, it sorts itself out. Well, I feel really blessed. And, and uh, I'll tell you, it's an important thing in, in my life, in my career, um, that uh, I have been able to talk to you about these matters where, that we totally agree upon. And uh, they usually involve not just gun violence, but the prevalence of guns um, in our society. I want to turn our attention first in Gone Boy. That was... Uh, the subtitle was A Walkabout. You were in search of uh, explanations about uh, 
the shock of loss of your son. You wrote a memoir about the investigation and how could such a thing happen. And um, it's a very, very powerful book. This one, you've written a number of books since then. Mooney's Manifesto, which I've just finished. Um, there, I, I can't do any better than what American critic Kenneth Turan said about Mooney's Manifesto, and I'm quoting, a savage and anguished cry from the black heart of despair at the dead center of the crisis of gun violence in America. What caused it to write, you to write it, and um, how do you characterize your own work? Well, I, 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 all along I had wanted, uh, as the years went by, to write a sort of uh, bookend to Gone Boy, which was, uh, in its own way, you know, uh, painful and, and moving, but uh, unresolved. There was a certain aspect of unresolution, because even when I answered the questions I was asking about what really happened to cause my son to be shot, um, my future as a, as a victim, as a survivor was, you know, undetermined. So flash forward 30 years, I've lived a whole life on the other side of that. My son's been dead nearly twice as long as he was ever alive. You know, that perspective changes everything. And I just wanted to kind of put a lid on this, uh, thing by writing a book, but then uh, the book started getting very weird, and I couldn't really understand what was happening. You know, sometimes when you write, uh, it's not that things write themselves, but you find them taking directions that you had not anticipated. And this book certainly uh, was headed in a direction that I hadn't anticipated, and it took me a couple of years even after I'd finished it, to figure out what was going on. And the nearest I could come to it was that little bit of residue of desire for revenge that lives in every victim of gun violence and probably will never be acted on by any of them because we are the ones who know the true cost of this sort of violence. And yet, you know, that thing is in there. It festers. And I think Looking back on it now, this strange, bizarre book was uh, an attempt to enclose or neutralize uh, that vile urge. Maybe even just by shining light on it, uh, you, 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 you make it lose its power. So in a way, this was sort of just a magical, an attempt at uh, <laughs> magical thinking, magical writing, whatever. But, you know, I did it. It's out there, so... Now we got to live with it. Well, Gregory Gibson, uh, your book, Mooney's Manifesto, uh, I learned from my co-host Bill Newman, who, uh, who has interviewed countless authors and is really good at it. I learned to like put little yellow post-it notes uh, on all those pages that I want uh, to ask you to read. Um, I have far too many yellow stickers, as Dan is looking at the book right <laughs> he now. He really does. <laughs> um, here for me to ask you... To, it, it, because there's so many turns that this book takes. I, I would like to ask you, however, apropos to what you were just talking about on page 11, um, the, the only full paragraph there, about starting midway in the page, I'd love for you to read that because I would like to ask you about that. An interesting question, is that the one? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, this is Joe Mooney talking early in the book. Uh, 
in fact, he's writing the whole book from in front of his uh, computer where he's sort of composing notes or a memoir or just keeping track of. He's already committed a hideous crime, and he's just keeping track of uh, how long it's taken officials to even get wise to him. Anyway, this is early on in the process, and he says, an interesting question came to me then. How come crazed gunmen never go after the people who make the guns? They shoot politicians, and they shoot their wives, and they shoot one another. They even shoot themselves, for crying out loud. And cops, there'd been that renewed rash of police assassinations, as I'm sure you recall. In that context, shooting the cynical mother bleepers behind the gun industry didn't seem like much of a leap. It seemed to me that if you gave everyone guns to keep them safe from people with guns, sooner or later they'll start shooting the people who give them the stuff to shoot them with. How so, much was that Gregory Gibson speaking? No, uh, that was a, a writer speaking who was uh, using that strange illogical logic to represent the crooked thinking of a guy who's already gone off the rails and doesn't know it. Uh, he feels sane, he feels reasonable, but he's nutty as a fruitcake. Mm-hmm. Bill, you have a question for Greg. Uh, you have turned your experience of your son being murdered and you wrote a nonfiction book that describes that it was really well received and people thought very moving and educational and helpful in terms of understanding both guns and what it's like to be a victim of intense and horrific gun violence. This book is a novel. And I'm wondering why you wanted to, or why the book, the writing became a novel, why that's the access point for you at this point in your life. Yeah, interesting question, Bill. Um, a lot of it has to do with the, uh, a lot of it has to do with my three decades of work as a gun violence prevention advocate. Uh, when I started out, there were, maybe 150 million guns in America and 20,000 people a year getting killed, if you can imagine what a hideous situation that was. And after working hard for 30 years, I find that there are now 400 million guns and 45,000 people a year getting killed by guns and all the work that I put into it. So I'm constantly looking for a way to tell this story, to spin this experience. People are so sick of hearing about the grief and suffering of other people. Every time there's a shooting, what do we see? We see people hugging and weeping and holding candles, and oh, it's just all so sad. Obviously, that kind of exposure isn't doing a darn thing to solve the problem because it just keeps getting worse. So from an artistic point of view or a creative point of view, I'm just looking for whatever I can do to shake this situation up enough to get people to maybe start thinking about it in a different way. So Gregory Gibson, I'd like to follow up on that. You've mentioned 45,000 people a year in this country dying from gun violence. That's almost as many United uh, persons in the United States who died in the Vietnam War in total. Yet we've gone from 150 or 200 million guns to 
400 million guns in this country, there seems to be nothing that will stop the perpetuation of gun violence and the proliferation of weapons of mass killings. What's your insight into why we fail over and over and over again to come to terms with this violence? My insight crafted over 30 years of intense bearing witness and deep thought is that I don't have an idea in the world why this stuff doesn't work. If I knew, I'd try what works, and maybe it'd help, but nothing seems to be helping. The situation right now is these guns are here, baby, and they've all got a shelf life of 50 or 100 years at least. They are not going away. So as a society, we'd better figure out how to live with this force among us because... Like I say, it's not going away. We're we're either going to live with it or die from it. We better figure out how to live with it. Gregory Gibson, um, I want to continue this conversation. It's a really important conversation. I want people to read your book. The book is Mooney's Manifesto by Gregory Gibson. Um, You can get it at your own independent bookshop. Uh, It is just so powerful, and there's so many aspects of guns, of violence, of the pain that's inflicted. There are more this year, 2023, there have been more mass shootings, four or more people killed, uh, shot at a time than there have been days in this year as New Year's approaches. Is yeah, I think we're in the 600s, Buzz. We're in the 600s. 623, 645, something like that. Yeah, that's, yep. you know, and that's only, that's only a teeny fraction of deaths by guns from suicide, from, you know, crime, from accident. Those are just the ones that are four or more. We're going to continue our conversation with Gregory Gibson right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. High school is a time of discovery, of exploring the world and shaping your future. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. At the Hartsbrook High School, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook students take their science studies into the woods and social studies into the community, working for food justice and applying their own solutions to issues such as climate change or food insecurity. They connect with students worldwide with the Model UN and participate in exchange, traveling to and hosting students from countries around the world. They cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world and can handle adversity. Is Hartsbrook the right school for your teenager? For parents and caregivers, there's a Discover Hartsbrook High School evening February 6th. There are visiting days for students January 23rd and February 6th. Register at Hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School, Waldorf Education, Early Childhood through High School, on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hadley. 
Sam the Minuteman is once again hosting his rockin' New Year's Eve party on Saturday, December 30th as the UMass men's basketball team takes on Siena at 1 p.m. Young UMass fans can enjoy poster making on the concourse, a photo booth, a halftime ball drop, and post-game layups on the court. Youth tickets for the game are just five bucks. Bring in the new year a day early with Massachusetts men's basketball by visiting umassathletics.com slash tickets. Go you! You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are back continuing our conversation with Gregory Gibson, in particular about his latest book, Mooney's Manifesto, um, which is a uh, an insight, if you will. I, I, I think it's an insight into uh, his dealing with the pain that comes from having lost your son to the senseless act of gun violence. And Gregory Gibson, uh, you have been an activist trying to bring people to their senses, not only about violence, but in particular about the extraordinary number of guns that we have in this country. Bill was just pointing out during the break and asking you about the 20, 30 million assault weapons which are involved in these mass shootings that uh, we just suffer from at this time. Do you have an explanation? Do you have an, uh, a theory to explain why people, sometimes good people, are so passionate about their guns? Well, of course, yeah. I've got theories and all sorts of stuff. I mean, just most basically, uh, America is unique uh, among uh civilizations that sprung from the British, their British origins, because while uh, Australia and New Zealand and Canada were able to negotiate themselves out of the situation, the colonial situation with Great Britain, what did we do? We shot our way out, and it worked pretty darn well. So right there, uh, plus which, you know, we really needed uh, guns because we really needed slavery, and the two of them, as you can imagine support one another in a certain horrible sense. But to me, even beyond that, part of the contemporary problem now is that we've got the whole situation. We just don't understand what we're looking at. Uh, you casually mentioned that 12 million or whatever the number was of assault-type military weapons. And I, re- I recall right at the top of the show, you said that uh, Galen had been killed with this kid who had an assault-type rifle. Well, in fact, he didn't have an assault-type rifle. He had a crummy used Chinese uh, carbine that he bought aftermarket parts for to make it work. Something like a military rifle might work, although the round was uh, a different round than they're using now. The point is, what made that gun as deadly as it could have been was the fact that it had a detachable 30-round magazine. Everybody goes on and on about the military weapons and this and that, and they're all absolutely right. We should not be giving civilians access to military-style killing machines, but if we want to get to where people are getting killed in America, most of them are getting killed by pistols, and most of those pistols have detachable magazines. So if we really want to stop gun violence in America and we're really ready to do anything we want to do, hey, First thing to do is outlaw pistols. Second thing to do is, you know, make guns like cars. You've got to insure them. You've got to be responsible for them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this whole 
uh, concept of assault weapons, uh, it's just so overheated. These stupid guns have become such a symbol, you know, the the camo uh, camo people waving them around in public, you know, to, to terrify people. It's all just it's just drama. They're drama queens, and it's a symbol. We've 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 empowered that darn gun instead of ourselves, instead of our politicians, to get some backbone and stand up against the you know the people that support the gun industry. We've empowered the gun. Isn't that stupid? It's backwards. We're we're just doing such a terrible job at this whole thing. I I don't even know where to start. It is difficult to know where to start. We're talking to Gregory Gibson. Gregory Gibson is also the, uh, he's a book dealer and owner of 10 Pound Island Book Company in uh, Gloucester. You can find it online, 10 Pound Island. Uh, You and uh, your family have created the Karate Gibson, um, the Galen Gibson Scholarship Trust, which is also known as the Galen Fund. Would you tell us about that and how people could support well, that that trust mission. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, back in 1998, uh, we decided that we should do some kind of a memorial for Galen, and um, we started a nonprofit uh, charity. And as the money started coming in, you know, people were generous and donated, and we had some family money that we put in there, and we began giving uh, scholarships to students from the local high school who were interested in the things that Galen had been interested in, technology and theater and stuff like that. But we began to feel that it was, it was too limited. So we looked around and we saw what we could potentially be doing uh, was just helping survivors of gun violence who might be in financial need. I mean, a lot of people are terribly traumatized, so traumatized that they can't function as they used to. They go through difficult periods. They might need medical help. They might need uh, medicine. I mean, who knows? There's all kinds of needs. And we thought, well, the least we can do is try to lend some form of support to these people, but also in a bigger way, uh, support community organizations that are trying to do exactly the things that help prevent gun violence. In other words, make a healthy community that's not dysfunctional and it's not uh, full of vengeance. It's full of, you know, people who are all on the same page and want to go forward in the same way. So let's support that. And since then, that's pretty much been our mission. Uh, During COVID, uh, we sent out hundreds of checks for $250 a piece to uh, survivors of gun violence in the Boston area who are in having a little financial trouble. And we said in a note that went with it, here, just take this money and please do something with it that'll put a smile on your face because that's what you need right now, I'm sure. So time goes by, little postcards and and responses start coming in, and we are shocked at the number of them that say, thank you so much for that check. I didn't know how I was going to feed my family this week, or they were going to turn my lights off, or... Now we can get some heating oil. Yeah, you know, I mean that kind of just basic stuff. It just was, basic stuff, but so yeah. many lives have been affected uh, by the Galen Fund, the Galen Gibson Scholarship Trust. Um, I just encourage people to please uh, be generous. Just go to goneboy dot com. G O N E B O Y goneboy dot com, and the whole. 
story is there and uh, at the bottom of the page. And unfortunately, we are out of time. The book that most recently Gregory Gibson has authored is Mooney's Manifesto. Please go to your independent bookstore and, and uh, order it. And it's it's a powerful read. Gregory Gibson, you are an amazing person, and I thank you for all that you do. And thank you. This for being is on Talk, Talk the Talk. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. I guess I called AA because alcohol didn't work anymore. Drinking used to give me a sense of meaning in life. I called AA not knowing what to expect, certainly not cheerfulness, but that's what I got. People had humor. They seemed to be at ease. I hung around. Now I feel much more comfortable with myself and the people around me. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, 